Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare the steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music and the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At your works, your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish and all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox that you have poured over me, fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard of the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age and are ever full of sap and green to declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Word of the Lord, Trey. Thank you, Aaron. Good morning. Go ahead and have a seat, please. Before we begin this morning, let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to come and to gather together with our family, our, our spiritual family, our brothers and sisters in Christ and to open Your Word and to hear it preached. Father, I stand before You this morning as a broken man preaching to broken people. Lord, humble us as we come before Your Word. Humble us to hear it and to understand it. Give us the ears to hear and the desire to understand and to learn and to follow You further. In Your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Whoa. Good? Okay. Um, this morning, we're going to dive into Psalm 92. As a young man, I never appreciated the Psalms. Um, I never appreciated the depth of the Psalms. I think as we grow older, Aaron and I were discussing this the other day, the older we get, the more we can appreciate what's there. Um, one of the things that you don't appreciate when you're younger is the highs and the lows of the author's and the rawness of the confessions that we see in there, and the way that we can approach God, we can learn that from the Psalms, from that package of books. One of the most valuable lessons we learn from the Psalms is how we are to interact and how we are to relate to our God. From these passages, we can learn how we can offer praise and worship. We're going to study that here shortly. But we can also see how we can weep and cry out when we're in despair, and when our hearts are breaking. We can also learn how to confess our sins before God. Some of the confessions in the Psalms are just amazing. Today we're going to open up Psalms 92 in particular. Just a brief historical overview about Psalm 92. We're not certain exactly who was the author. Uh, we, we think it was probably one of the kings because if you read the language, especially towards the end of the verse or the chapter, you find 
there's language that a king would be using, someone in the kingly position. Uh, now, most of your Bibles, if you look at the top of the psalm, it's labeled a psalm for the Lord's day or a song for the Sabbath, right? What's interesting is in all of the psalms, this is the only psalm that's labeled this way. Now, if you remember back to what Aaron was reading, you'll remember, you'll see that the word Sabbath, quite curiously, is not even mentioned in the psalm. And yet the Hebrews call this a song for the Sabbath. So what we're going to study today is, is a lifestyle of Sabbath worship. What is a lifestyle of Sabbath worship? What does that mean? What does it look like in our lives? So today as we open up, we're going to look at, I have three points prepared. Uh, and those points are this. One, the first point is worship is the delight of the believer. Worship is the delight of the believer. And that's in verses 1 to 4. Then we're going to move down into verses 5 to 9, and we'll see that there's a warning of doom for the unbeliever. A warning of doom for the unbeliever. And then as we look, the third point is the flourishing believer. We'll wrap up the chapter studying the flourishing believer. So before we approach the passage and these points, let's talk about, let's look at a little bit of background on the Sabbath. What is it? Why was it? Set aside. What's so special about Sabbath? Well, we first see the Sabbath in Genesis, right? On the seventh day, the Lord rested. God had created during the first six days. God had spent creating and making this earth. And then on the seventh day, He rested. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God needed rest after seven days of creating the earth? Probably not. Probably not. But God knew that we needed rest, right? He knew that we needed to take one day in seven where we stop and we focus on Him. Where we draw our eyes and our attention on Him and the things of His Word. And we praise His name. We lift up, we come in here, we sing our songs, and we offer prayer and praise, right? That's what, what He did. Now think about this. Think about this, folks. This is important. God has commanded us to take one day in seven. He gave this command to Moses to write, but this was taking place long before Moses wrote it in. This was taking place before there was sin in the world, right? That sin had not yet. We are before chapter 3 of Genesis when sin entered the world. Sin complicates things. Sin makes our lives difficult, right? God knew that in this sinful world, we would especially need a day that we can pull back and focus on Him. That we can look and turn our attention and our gaze upon our Savior. As we look at in the New Testament, we, we wonder, the, the Old Testament Hebrews worshipped God on Saturday. It was the, the seventh day, right? They, their, their Sabbath started on Friday evening and it went through all day Saturday until Saturday evening. Now, as, as the new, in the New Testament now, we, we worship on Sunday as we are this morning. We're gathering and we're praising and lifting uh, up God's name. The reason we do this is because this is the day that the Lord was raised. This was the day that the resurrection occurred. And we are remembering and celebrating that resurrection. Um, what's, what's important is that Jesus himself, you know, he proclaimed himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, let me read a passage from out of Mark this morning describing, describing the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why is he doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
And they said to him, have you not? And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Uh, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God. And at the, t- at the time of Abathar, the high priest ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And then he said this to them. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now what, what happened here was the disciples were walking through a field on, on a Sabbath on Saturday. They were plucking up grains and they were eating them. Okay. The Pharisees had established a bunch of laws and rules to kind of protect the Sabbath. And one of their roles was that you could not do that. You could not pluck the grains. Okay. It was okay to eat, but you couldn't pluck the grains of, of, of wheat. Jesus obviously rebuked them about this. And then he, he made this statement that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is the perspective that we need to take today on the Sabbath. Why we worship what we call the Lord's Day. How do we approach the Lord's Day? Do we approach it as a day that we truly set aside for the worship of God? Or do we approach it as a day that there's a bunch of rules that we have to follow in order to keep the Sabbath holy? Um, the, the reason that we spend our time here worshiping is because this is what God has commanded us to do. As we read in those first verses, this is what God expects from us as believers in Him. So let's move on into our first point now. Worship is the delight of the believer. Worship is the delight of the believer. In verses 1-4, through we read this. uh, We see these acts of worship. And let me read these again. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Your name, O Most High, to declare Your steadfast love in the morning and Your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. By the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Now here the writer of this psalm is making an obvious statement about the delight of the believer to gather and to worship the Lord. It is a delight. It's good. It's something that he wants to do. Um, Everything in these four verses that we see points us towards God. None of this is self-centered pointing back towards me or towards towards the people. It is all pointing towards God. So what do we see happening here? First, we see they're giving thanks and they're singing praises, which is what we begin our Sunday services doing, right? We, we sing, we pray, we come, we're settling our hearts and looking uh, toward to the Lord f- to worship Him. Uh, next, we see in verse 2, we see something about the praising of God for His attributes. Now, what is an attribute of God? What does that mean? An attribute is, is God's character. It is who He is. Right? And in verse 2, we see two that are mentioned. We see his steadfast love and his faithfulness. These are attributes of God. These are things that define who God is. And he is these things perfectly. He can't be any better at being a loving God. He can't be any better at being a faithful God. He is perfect in those things. That is why we call those attributes. Now, this is a little foreshadowing, a little foreshadowing. We're going to see in a few minutes, um, an attribute that we don't often praise God for. Excuse me. But we also see worship through uh, called for both morning and evening. One of the songs we just sang, it, sang, it talked about how we were singing in the morning and praising Him in the evening. Right? 
throughout the Old Testament, throughout, especially throughout the Psalms, we see calls to worship in the morning and in the evening. Again, this goes back to that idea of a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of Sabbath worship. Is that something that we really desire to do? Um, when we gather in here, we, we, it's our desire to worship God and to come before and to fellowship with Him and to get to know Him personally. Um, one of the key verses in this, and, and Jed talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is verse 8. It's in the center. I, I believe he used the term mathematical centering. Is that correct? Right. The, the Hebrews did not use bold type and highlighters and so forth. But where the placement of words and phrases was very important in the Psalms because that's how they drew attention to certain things. Well, verse 8 says this. It says, um, it says, but you, O Lord, are, are on high forever. And this reminds us of the language that we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah uh, 6.1, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, what? High and lifted up, right? Our praise and worship does exactly that. We are lifting the Lord up. We are putting in Him in His rightful place. And again, as I said before, our praises... As much as God desires them and wants them from us, they cannot add anything to God. But we do it because He commands us to do it and it centers us back on Him. It forces our focus back on Him. Now, unfortunately, the modern church has forgotten this principle. They've forgotten this principle of what is, what is the Lord's day for? Why are we here and worshiping? Um, the church, unfortunately, the modern church, has become an entertainment industry. People come to church because they want to be entertained. That's not what we do here at the crossing. It's not our focus. But years ago, there was a survey taken by a, a famous pastor in Chicago. I'm not going to name him. Um, but he went out and he surveyed all the churches in the Chicago area, all the Bible-believing churches in the Chicago area. Um, and Because he was trying to figure out what people thought about church. And he was approaching this as, how can I improve what's going on? And one of the things that he found was that people found church boring and irrelevant. People were coming to church and they were saying why they didn't like church was because they thought that it was boring and irrelevant. Um, a few years ago before he died, R.C. Sproul was meeting with this pastor and this pastor had explained to him that very thing about why he was running and, and, and having his church services the way he was. And he told R.C. Sproul, he said, you know, people find church boring and irrelevant. And R.C. Sproul had a great quote, and I was just going to read this to you. He says this, R.C. said this, he said, when I look at my Bible and people encounter God, I see some of them tremble. I see some of them weep. I see some of them die. But never can I find any place in my Bible where people encounter the living God and go, ho-hum, that was kind of boring. R.C. continued, could it be that the reason they find church boring and irrelevant is that they come to church, God is not there. His Word is not honored and preached. His praises are not being sung. He was not the focus of what was going on. Or could it be that the reason they come to church is that, uh, and that they are bored is because they aren't looking for God. They're looking for something else. Here at the crossing, everything we do on Sunday morning at this gathering is directed toward the worship of our Lord. 
our songs, our prayers, our servants, all of our worship is directed towards and intended to exalt Him. We by no means have it perfect though. There are always things that we could do better. We are always striving to worship the Lord in a way that He desires to be worshipped. Not in the way we want to worship Him or the way we think He wants to be worshipped, but the way He desires it. And He spells that out for us in Scripture in passages like this. So a question we need to ask ourselves personally is this. Do I truly celebrate a Lord's Day? Do I truly celebrate a Lord's Day? How about this one? Do I truly celebrate a Lord's morning? Or how about a Lord's hour? Is this, is this even crossing my mind? Or is the Lord's Day merely a check mark on our weekly to-do list? That pendulum swings both ways though. I, I've known a number of people who take pride in what they don't do on Sunday. I, I know people that take pride in saying, no, we don't go to restaurants on Sunday or we don't watch sporting events on Sunday or God forbid that we would mow our yard on a Sunday. That's the pendulum swinging too far the other way. They have forgotten the principle. They are still trying to focus. They have taken pride in their ability to follow some rules. They've forgotten the principle that the Lord's Day is the day of worship. It's not a day of rules. I've told my family this many times, that the Lord's Day and our Sunday morning worship is the high point of my week. This is the time that I look forward to. It's the time of refreshment. It's the time when I'm gathering with you, my spiritual family and my own family, to come and to worship the Lord and to sing His praises. It... it, sets my mind right for the rest of my week. That's what I'm looking forward to. But I have to tell you this, that it has not always been that way for me. I went through a period of several years where um, I did not want to be here. I did not want to come on Sunday morning and spend time with the believers coming before God. But it was through the faithful men and godly men who came along beside me and helped me to work through things that I'm back now where I love to be here in the house of God, worshiping with, with you. Point number two, a warning of doom for the unbeliever. A warning of doom for the unbeliever. We're going to pick up and read in verse 5. And as we do, I want you to notice the stark contrast between verse 5 and then verses 6, 7, and 9. Here we're contrasting God's greatness with the wicked and the evil men out there. Verse 5, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot understand this, or cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. The thought of the wicked sprout that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish they are doomed to destruction forever but you O lord are lifted up on high forever for behold your enemies O lord for behold your enemies shall perish all evildoers shall be scattered now remember what i said earlier about the foreshadowing of an attribute of god that we don't really like to talk about and this is this is spelled out right here it's god's wrath 
God's wrath is, is spelled out clearly right here in Scripture. This psalm clearly teaches that just as God is exalted through our worship and praise, what we bring Sunday mornings, just as He's exalted through that, He is also just as exalted in the destruction of the wicked and the evildoers. We don't sing many songs about that, do we? We don't hear many sermons preached about that, do we? Why? Well, it makes us a little bit nervous. It is very disconcerting to us. It makes us uncomfortable. But there's two important reasons why this is important to us. The first is, this contrast is provided as a dire warning to the unbeliever. They should turn from their wickedness and follow God. They will be eternally destroyed otherwise. And God will be justified in their destruction. And He will be exalted through their destruction. There's an implied call to repentance for the unbeliever here. The second point is this. Because it makes us as believers a little bit uncomfortable, right? To think about this, that the wicked, the evil people will be destroyed. It should motivate us to take the Gospel to these people. It should motivate us to speak of the good news and everything that we do, every opportunity that we have. I know that I don't do this. I don't do this nearly enough. I don't bring that good news. And I don't take that perspective that this eternal person will be eternally destroyed. This is a great time right here that if you are here today and haven't confessed of your sins and your wickedness and your evilness before God and realize and recognize that, that you are offending a holy God with your sin, today's the day. Turn from that. Call upon God. Confess your sins. And through the faithful faithfulness of the blood of His Son, you will be covered. You will be saved. And that destruction will not come upon you. You know, Earlier I said that, that churches don't often preach about this and that we don't hear about this, a message like this often. And how do we combat that? How do we combat that here at, 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 corner, or at the crossing? And I think one of, the, one of the key ways we do that is that we typically preach through books. As, as, as Aaron said earlier, he's going to start with Genesis 1-1 and we're going to go through Genesis. And I'm excited to hear it. But because we take a book at a time and we take a chapter and verses and we go line by line through it, we can't skip over the parts that make us uncomfortable. We can't ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. Okay, So this gives us that opportunity to hear things that, that are part of God's Word that we may or may not ever hear another another location, another church. Everybody, everybody here, everybody we know worships something. Hopefully, we're worshiping God, and He is the focus of our of our lives. But everybody worships something. And what does the unbeliever worship? They worship money and power and fame and education. Right, they they tend to want to worship the things, the, the good things that God does. They want the gifts 
but they don't want the giver. They want the good things that God has created, but they don't want God. And this is true of many that call themselves believers today in the modern church. Now, God uses our, the author uses some, some harsh words here earlier. He talked about the stupid and he talked about the fool. And those words are used very specifically in scripture. They're not just words like we throw stupid and fool around kind of casually. In, in scripture, that's not the case. No word is ever used casually or haphazardly, right? The word stupid here does not mean someone who lacks an intelligence. It does not mean someone who, you know, who is just not quite as sharp as everybody else, right? What stupid means here is someone who is willfully suppressing the truth in their life. They're willfully suppressing the truth of God in their life. We see this person spelled out in Romans 1, 18 to 23. Romans 1, 18 to 23. Let's read that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in these things, oh, in these things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so what, what um, Paul is talking about here is that there are those who knowingly and willfully suppress the truth. They reject the things of God willfully. And those are the stupid that he's talking about in Psalm 92. Then there's also in Luke 12 where we see the parable about the rich man. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but remember the story, the parable of the rich man who his grain fields were so productive that he had to tear down his barns and build new barns, right? And he was proud of what he had gained. He was proud of the blessings that God had given him. And he he said, let us eat, drink, and be merry. Um, And he says... I have, I have laid up my goods. I have storage. I have plenty. I have all that I could ever need. And what did the Lord say to him? The Lord says this, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, where shall they be? And whose shall they be? So there is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here again, we see the Bible pointing out and saying that there are those that are worshiping something else besides God and it will gain them absolutely nothing. We as believers, the point is we as believers, we worship our God eternally. We will be worshiping our God throughout all of eternity. The other things, the things that we worship here on earth, they will mean absolutely nothing the moment we die. Absolutely nothing. So let's turn, let's look at something a a little more exciting. The flourishing of the believer. Point three, the flourishing of the believer. And this we see in verses 10 to 15. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. 
My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like palm trees. They grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in their old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. You know, it's, it's not just that we as believers desire to, to worship God, but by delighting in God and delighting and wanting to worship Him, we will flourish. We will flourish. Now, to, so what does that mean? What does that look like to flourish in this life? Um, as, as we saw, as we see up in verse seven, the evil flourish, right? As we, as we saw with the rich man in Luke 12, he was flourishing. To, to flourish means to grow in this, in this sense. To flourish means to grow in the stature of the Lord and to learn more about him and to grow to love him more and to understand how to worship him and, and to be one with him. They compare believers to the cedar and the palm in verse 12 and 14. And he contrasts that to the grass. The, the wicked are compared to the grass, right? If you think about this, the, the cedar in, in the Bible is a symbol of strength and, and security. They're, they were huge and they were strong. The palm tree, think about the palm tree. Where do palm trees grow? In very desert, accurate climates, right? In places where most other things will not grow, a palm tree will grow. Right? It requires very little water, but it can be in a harsh environment. And that's what, that's what we are being compared to. That strong cedar or that, that palm tree that flourishes no matter where it's planted. To truly, to truly flourish, flourish in a spiritual manner is to truly delight in God and to worship Him. But flourishing does not mean that we will be without pain. Flourishing does not mean that there will be not mean that there will be difficulties in our lives, right? Think about Moses. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, it says that Moses lived and he was 120 years old when he died. But one of the things that was going on with Moses, he was nearly blind when he died, right? His physical body was failing him. But his vigor for the Lord, his, his desire to lead God's people was just as strong when he was 120 years old and about to die. We see David. David at the end of his life. Think about all of the struggles David had, right? I mean, we, we can think of some of the easy ones, Bathsheba and so forth, but some of the sins that David committed, like the counting of the people. God told him not to count the people, and what did David do? He counted the people, right? There was there were some major sin issues in David's life, but at the end of his life, he was still flourishing. He was still going strong for the Lord. He wanted to worship the Lord. And we see at the end of First Chronicles the prayer that he offers up for the people as he's preparing to turn over his kingdom. Right? Um, John on the island of Patmos. John had been exiled to the island of Patmos, and he was about to, you know, well, he didn't know when he was going to die, but he was exiled there. And he was writing the book of Revelation. And he and he talks about you know, even though in the situation he was in, he was still in the Lord's spirit on the Lord's day. He was still rejoicing and flourishing in the Lord, even though he knew that his time was drawing to an end. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, we do not lose heart, for though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. I want to give you an example 
of flourishing for my own life, and that's that of my dad. Um, my dad died almost three years ago due to complications from cancer, numerous bouts of it. Uh, he lost both of his kidneys, his bladder, much of his intestine. It was it was pretty sad. But to put some to add some context to the story, I always remember my father as being just a healthy as a horse and strong. Um, he was vibrant. He was a track star in college. He flew fighter aircraft in Vietnam. He flew crop dusters for years. He was a successful businessman. Probably the most important things that he did was that he was an elder and a teacher in the church. And he raised our family and to be godly believers. And he taught us the ways of God. Um, about 10 years ago, he was having a surgery, going in for a surgery. What we would say was a fairly routine surgery, if you can call removing a kidney fairly routine. But he was going in to have his first kidney removed. And during the surgery, there was an error. There was a mistake made by the surgeon. Um, that, sur- that, that, that error was something that my mom and my dad would have to deal with every day of his life, multiple times a day until he died almost three years ago. It was devastating because for my dad, it literally grounded him. I mean that from the perspective of he was a pilot. He could not do the things physically that he wanted to be able to do. Um, but, But here's the story. Following the surgery, my dad's laying in the hospital bed. And there's tubes coming out of his body, wires connected to him. And the surgeon comes in and the surgeon is visibly shaken because of what had happened. The surgeon's talking to them and trying to explain what had gone on, and the surgeon is literally shaking. According to my mother, who's sitting right there, my dad reached up, grabbed the surgeon's hand, squeezed it, said, let me pray for you. That's flourishing. That's being a palm. That's being a cedar. That's wanting to glorify God in everything that you do. My dad was more concerned about that man's eternal security than he was about his own momentary affliction. That's how we flourish. That's how we, that's what it looks like to bear fruit in our old age. Now, as Paul said, again, I'll repeat it, we do not lose heart. For though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Believer, are you flourishing today? Are you worshiping God in such a way that you are drawing closer to Him morning and evening, day by day? In in conclusion, so often our our discussions about the Sabbath and the Lord's Day and the sermons that we hear devolve into questions about, well, can I do this on the Sabbath? Can I do this on Sunday? Can I not do that? And and people, people of God, our perspective is wrong. If those are the questions we're asking, our perspective is all wrong. God gave us a Sabbath. He gave us a day of rest. 
We should rejoice in it, not be looking for rules to follow on that day. It should be our desire to come in here and to worship, as we saw in our first point, and to fellowship and to lift God up and exalt Him and to praise His name. But it should also be our desire to realize that the wicked will be destroyed and that we need to reach out to them and we need to offer them the Gospel. And finally, it needs to be a time that we're flourishing. A time that we are growing closer and closer to the Lord where even when we are faced with life-devastating consequences, we praise God and we move on and we offer Him His praise. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we just thank You that we could open up Your Word this morning. We're thankful thankful that You are such a good and wonderful God that You've given us Your Word, that You've given us the Psalms so that we can stop and we can learn how to relate to You. We can learn how we are to call upon You. Father, we just pray that everything that we bring before You today through our Psalms and our songs and our, our prayers and our sermon, Lord, we pray that it brought glory to You. Father, we lift up the rest of this day to You. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.